Ultravox there, and I'm going to say something now which might make a lot of you feel very, very old. That was released 30 years ago today. So... <laughs> and Jill still hasn't forgiven Bob Geldof for what happened at the Live Aid concert with performing in front of the Princess Diana. <laughs> yes. Um, Daniel Mumby's here. Yeah, it's good to be back, albeit in slightly staggered circumstances. Yes, we're going to just... Pick up, pick up where we left off last year, and with nothing but movies, movies, movies for an hour. And a Sorry. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you don't like it, tough. <laughs> but don't you know? <laughs> right. We're going to start off as normal with the UK's top ten. That would films. be sensible. Yeah. Do you want to say what number ten is? Season of the Witch. Now I have to confess, when I first heard this title, I thought, has it got to the point with Hollywood remakes that someone's actually thought it would be a good idea to remake Halloween three? which is the one famously which has no resemblance to any of the other Halloween films. Mm -hmm. But it isn't, fortunately enough, or maybe unfortunately. Um, it's it's yet another kind of uh, sword and sandals, not sword and sandals, sword and sorcery epic with Nick Cage doing a where's my check performance. <laughs> and it rips off a whole bunch of stuff, you know, from Lord of the Rings to Exorcist for the beginning, which was terrible in the first place. And there's yeah. the scene when they go over the bridge, which is a direct ripoff of the Wages of Fear or Sorcerer, if you prefer. I mean, it's just a bit pants, really. And... Uh I think how, <laughs> when I looked at the trailer and seen a few clips, I just thought, we had Solomon Kane last year. Yes. Did we need another one? Because Solomon Kane hardly set the world on fire. And it also made me a little bit sad because as a younger younger gentleman, Nicolas Cage was, is stuff like Rock, Conair, leaving Las Vegas. He was just, he was on form. Now it's just, it's quite sad. You kind of just want to take him and say, look, stop. Well, the thing <laughs> is, he has been on quite good form recently because he did the remake of Bad Lieutenant with Werner Herzog and then he was in Kick-Ass. So, mm. I think... Like so many actors, the thing with Nick Cage is that he has a very distinctive style and the trick is to marry that to a director who knows what to get the best of him. I mean, if you look at one of his kind of very outlandish performances in David Lynch's Wild at Heart, in which everything is over the top, yeah. it works, even though the film is quite kind of unhinged and difficult to live with. That is how you do a Nicolas Cage performance, and Laura Dern's terrific in that film. Mm -hmm. Red Rock West is another good one, early, early Nick Cage film as well. Yeah, or Peggy Sue Got Married, the Francis Ford Coppola comedy. Definitely. Yeah. At number nine, we have The Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Which is the weakest of the three Narnia films so far. They are making The Silver Chair, as far as I'm aware. It may be that the book is weaker than the other two. I mean, it doesn't have anything like the simplicity of the Turkish delight um, metaphor from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's directed by Michael Apted, who is a much more kind of workmanlike nuts and bolts director than Andrew Adamson was. Um, and certainly judging by the way that Harry Potter has kind of clung on into the top ten and actually overtaken it again, I think that it's not hitting its core audience. But it's probably okay in a sort of disposable way. The funny thing, because I, I watched the, I finally caught up with the second one over Christmas when it was on BBC. Um, oh, yeah. And I thought it was... It was all right. It's <laughs> not, not exactly a ringing endorsement, but it was just like, yeah, it's watchable. Yes. Somewhere, then, Michael, somewhere, a Disney director is going, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can make the fourth one now. He likes it. <laughs> Some guy I've never heard of on a show I've never even heard of likes it. Yeah. You know, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> but the, um, the thing is, which I read about, is that the, the Spanish Prince Caspian character has dropped his accent completely for the third film. Right. Which is thought, like, he was Spanish, but now he's not, so... A little yes. bit odd, but... Yes. Doesn't say, you know, you killed my father, prepare to die. <laughs> I think Unfortunately. you should. Yes. <laughs> that would have been so much better. We could have said that in Tron Legacy if things went awry, which is... Oh, uh, well, I see what you've done there. Ah. Yeah, and it would have made Tron Legacy slightly less dull. I mean, first off, it didn't need to be in 3D. Um, it's disappointing the fact that the script is very formulaic, and a lot of the CGI effects, like the younger Jeff Bridges' mouth, don't work properly. I mean, there, were, there was a lot of talk about... Um, certainly, you know, in, among Empire readers, no other magazines are available about whether it was going to be this year's Avatar, you know, this bit supposedly, th um, 3D envelope pusher. And the fact that it's taken a comparatively little money means, first off, I mean, I think it has the same kind of basic flaws mm -hmm. as Avatar in the sense that it is a lot of spectacle but not much else. But it just isn't striking a chord with people. I think it's no, it, it doesn't have the charm of the original by quite some distance. Yeah, Empire has a habit of doing that. They'll they'll plug a film for a good year and a half before it releases, and then actually when and they, they, they give rise, it two they go, stars. They go, nah, it's all right. Let's forget about that. Um, yeah, Transformers being a notable. Uh, don't <laughs> yes, let's, don't give Michael Bay any more publicity than he deserves, which but, is none at all. But yeah, Tron Legacy, it's, as I say, it's a lot of style, not little, little substance. But it, the one thing which made us laugh was reading about it was that uh, the bad guys in this plan to escape the computer program and take over the world, which which pose, is the poses same. little threat. To, which like, is the same plot from the first film. Yeah, it's like. Would anyone be, it didn't really come out of terror, would you be scared if Miss Pac-Man jumped out the screen at you to sort of go, 
this is a bit daft. So I, that's the bits of things like that just don't help it. But I think it had a nice shiny trailer, which uh, which got a, made a minute enough money, I think. Yeah, it's. I mean, they are actually talking about making a Tron Legacy sequel, so it'll be Tron Legacy Legacy. But uh, we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Yes, at number seven we have Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Yes, this one. strange quirky wizard film which just won't go away. Um, it's perfectly fine. I think the the real test of how good it is will come when part two comes out in the summer, and obviously there are still talks about. Are both instalments going to be put together? Are they both going to be in 3D? You know, but until then, it's it's pretty much fine. It's what you'd expect from a Harry Potter film these days. I'd be impressed if anyone could sit through five hours or what could possibly be a six-hour Harry Potter-a-thon, yeah. <laughs> especially the other target audience for it. They would just be... They'd have to stop halfway through, halfway through and go, right, everyone toilet break, which kind of defeats the point of putting them on. But I, Yeah, yeah but there was there was um, a film recently, it was a foreign-language uh, gangster film called Carlos, and the director's cut of that was five hours long. And you'd be surprised, because I was curious, up outside the uh, the Tyneside when it was on, and you'd be surprised how many people were actually going in and sticking it out without, and because there was no intermission in it. Surely that guy needs to meet a good editor. Yeah, maybe that's the, <laughs> maybe that's the Heaven's Gate fan club saying, <laughs> at least somebody's being ambitious. No, just cut it down. At number six, we have Love and Other Drugs. Which is pretty decent romantic drama. There's good performances from Anne Hathaway and Jake Gyllenhaal. We'll talk about more in uh, about half an hour's time because he, he crops up on one of my uh, choices for films to watch this year. I think that there, there was a story actually when they, because there's a lot of, um, there, the story is they're uh, a couple you know, having kind of um, relationship which is based on nothing but sex and eventually Jake Gyllenhaal ends up falling in love with Anne Hathaway but she can't, yeah. you know, she won't let that happen for reasons that we don't want to give away. There was a story that when they were making it, Ed Zwick, who's the director, made things like Defiance and Glory, uh, which is a very good film, to get them in the in, in the mood for the uh, the sex scenes, made them watch things like uh, Michael Winterbottom's Nine Songs and Last Tango in Paris to kind of see how far do you want to take these on the screen. And, and obviously, if you've seen <laughs> Last Tango in Paris, there is no butter involved in this film. <laughs> Let's be clear about that. I think the central problem with Love and Other Drugs, like a lot of Edswick's stuff, is that I mean he's a very good actress director, but there is always a point in his film when the kind of, the message, all the political stuff starts to come through and overwhelm the character story. And I think it's never quite clear whether it's a message film or a character film, but it's, it's like I say, it's, it's pretty decent as a, as a romantic comedy drama, and I like the two lead actors very much. Yeah, so I have to have, be careful, I say, because we're, we're in the market and I have to be careful, I don't slag the whole industry off, but I have a problem with the marketing of this film. There was um, little snippets all through over Christmas on stuff like Sky News and BBC and stuff like that, and the way the marketing people have sold this film is, he's pretty, she's pretty. And Hathaway nice, takes her clothes off. Yeah, and it's Hooray! a nice romantic comedy. But the thing which we can't mention because it would give too much away, it's not. That's not the tone of the film. No, it isn't. So um, it, I think it's going to be one. It's a bit like Monsters we mentioned before Christmas. People are going to go. Oh, this isn't what I was after, but I've paid my money anyway. So. Yeah, but unlike, you know, people shouting, where are the monsters at the screen, I don't think you'll get people sitting through Love and Other Drugs just saying, take your clothes off, just get on with it. <laughs> Some shows at certain times at <laughs> night, I bet you do. Well, <laughs> mate, maybe, at the late night screening, but <laughs> only uh, after a few drinks. True. At number, <laughs> number five, we have The Next Three Days, which is the new Russell Crowe vehicle. Yeah, it's a remake of a French thriller called Poor Al, or anything for her, as it's known in this country, which is, no, the, sto the story being, uh, you have a... a, a husband and wife, the wife gets sent to prison, presumably innocent, all the appeals fail and the husband you know, has to go through the pro doing anything for her by trying to break her out of prison. And this is remade by Paul Haggis, whom I think is a very overrated director, made things like Crash, which won the Best Picture Oscar in 2005, you know, snubbing Brobeck Mountain, and he recently did the rewrites on Quantum of Solace, the last Bond film, which is... Oh, so he's, he's got a good track record, then. He's got a fantastic <laughs> track record, and of course Crash is rather kind of um, ham-fisted about its you no know, racial politics and so forth. I think that... Like so many American remakes, what you essentially get is the same story, but with the action cranked up, and, I mean, I don't think there was that much substance in the first one, to, in the first place, to be honest, but it is just that sort of, it's focusing much more on the kind of mechanics of how you'd get someone out of prison, rather than the emotional development of the characters, which yeah. comes from that. I mean, I like Russell Crowe, but he just doesn't have anything ready to work with here. I was going to say, yeah, uh, uh, there was a time when Russell Crowe's uh, you'd release one film a year and it would be a big marquee event. Yes. Uh, go Master Master Commander, Gladiator, things like that. And yes. this is, it's a bit, I won't say worrying, but it's a little bit sad that this has kind of just been leaked out during the quiet period and just thought, oh, here it is, in amongst all the Harry Potter and all the other stuff which we'll get to. 
Uh, it does. I think it's one that I, I will. Well, we'll go and see. But it's. I say it's a bit of a. It's a bit weird that Russell, maybe Russell Crowe's just trying to play under the radar after yeah. all the shenanigans. The <laughs> moment I, I kind of realised that this wasn't going to be a good film is have you seen the uh, the TV spots for the next three days mm -hmm. where they interview in inverted commas, audience members, where people just come up randomly and say, great, you can never tell what was going to happen. Let, you see, these are audience members, yet they look as if they've been in makeup for three hours. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, last, the last one I saw had that was Paranormal Activity, and it was just like, oh, it was so scary. Like, yeah, it wasn't. The first <laughs> one was fine, but no. The second one was boring as hell. Anyway, we should move on. Uh, number four. Speaking of absolute masterpieces, we have Gulliver's Travels. Yes, gonna get Golden Globe nominations and so forth. It's rubbish, <laughs> frankly. What has happened to Jack Black? There was a great period when he was doing things like School of Rock and King Kong when I thought he'd really sort of reined in the Gurner slacker mm -hmm. shtick that he'd started off his career doing. And he'd become a decent supporting actor, but now he's just done what so many comedians do in his position and just follow the money. And if you have any interest in the original source novel by Jonathan Swift, go and watch the miniseries with Ted Danson instead because it's much more faithful to the novel and it's funnier definitely and uh, number three speaking of stuff that isn't funny it's not really it's not really going well this top ten <laughs> we have the little fuckers yes which is meet the parents three yeah it's another um, it's an awful unnecessary sequel to an already quite rubbish film the whole appeal of meet the parents in the first place was that it was essentially robert de niro sending himself up only with ben, with ben stiller rather than billy crystal who you know made analyze <laughs> this and analyze that and that because he's been just using that um tactic of getting work so much over the last 10 years that joke really isn't funny anymore and it's no the film doesn't have anything else to hang on or offer in terms of a comedy so yeah, why would you see it it was wearing thin during the second one i felt i was i was it was one of the films i was watching at the cinema and i was like looking at our watch thinking is there much left to go and i thought that's that's never a good sign the last film the only other film i remember doing that was troy which wasn't Yes, you, you've expressed your uh, your <laughs> admiration for that film before. The world's longest film. I'm sure Troy, Troy felt longer than that five-hour film you mentioned. <laughs> it felt like a lifetime. Yes. And speaking of long, long times, we have 127 hours. Yeah, or 127 days later, as a lot of Danny Boz fans have dubbed it. I mean... There was an interesting thing that when Slumdog Millionaire, Danny Ball's previous film, came out, it was kind of branded as the feel-good film of the decade, which it clearly wasn't because it contained scenes of, you know, uh, child poverty and, you know, torture to some extent. Yes. Um, a lot but, of Slumdog before the millionaire. Yeah, but the, <laughs> yes, there is a lot of Slumdog before the millionaire. But the ironic thing is that Danny Boyle was interviewed on Radio 5 Live a few weeks back, and he actually described this as a feel-good film, uh, saying, you know, basically, you come out with a renewed sense of, yeah, I feel really alive afterwards. And I think he's completely wrong. I mean, I think that the film is well made. It's the story, you know, based on the true story of Aaron Ralston, who who got stuck in a canyon and had to cut his arm off with a penknife. Mm -hmm. And like all Danny Boyle's work, there are very sort of elaborate, fantastical dream sequences in which, you know, it kind of lifted like the moment in Train Spotting where Ewan McGregor dives into the toilet and suddenly he's swimming in this wonderful blue lake. And it's a really interesting way of doing it. But it is, there are moments in the film which are positively wince-inducing, like when you see the penknife coming up towards, well, it's not an actual nerve, but they've kind of physically replicated yeah. the nerve, and it's like, <clears throat> but in a good way. Yeah, if you <laughs> want to see, basically, a long thing of a man struggling, then, and the, 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 the big selling point, well, not the selling point, the big thing at the end is like, oh, are you going to drink from a puddle? Stuff like that. <laughs> if that's your cup of tea, then, and crack on, but it was... I've watched, watched bits of it online, and I'm, not, I'm gonna be careful what I say because the whole you wouldn't steal a car, you wouldn't steal a handbag thing. <laughs> yes. But I, I kind of did. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange one because it's, you, you know, you know what's gonna happen, and it's, it doesn't really, I can't say why it would, it would encourage so many people to go and see it, unless, as I say, just fans of Danny Boyle's work. Yeah, I mean, it's done remarkably well for what is essentially a very independent, very low-budget film. Mm -hmm. it, it, it does, in the same way with Christopher Nolan's Inception, it does for all the world look like a film in which the studio went, okay, you made us a huge amount of money with your previous film, do what you like, yeah. and we'll give you distribution. It's good to see James Franco as well get himself back on track. Yeah, I mean, I, I was never a fan of him when he was doing the Spider-Man films, particularly the third one, in which he, he is a bit wet frankly yes. but, <laughs> but in this i think he's okay yeah he seems to be making a bit of resurgence because 
Unfortunately, for every one of this, there is a Pineapple Express and um, Date Night sort of cameo <laughs> performance, which is terrible. Yeah. But we'll see. No but we'll come on. Yeah, Date Night hints are what we're going to be talking about afterwards to some extent. At number one, we have The King's Speech. Which is great. It's it, I expected to scoop a lot of the awards that's going to get nominated for between now and March. Like I said, we've got the Golden Globes this Sunday, and I think Colin Firth is nominated for Best Actor um, in the Dramatic category. He in just that. won last night, or oh, probably of course, three o'clock in the morning, the Critics' Choice Award in America, so it's already it's already starting its little steamroll thing through yeah, the Yeah, and, and I think he deserves the Oscar. I think it's on a par, his performance is on a par with his work in A Single Man, which I absolutely love. I thought it was one of the best films of last year. Um, yeah, it's just a really good cast. I mean, Jeffrey Rush, who can be up and down, he's, you know, he has a tendency of choosing films that aren't very good in which he's brilliant, like mm -hmm. The Life and Death of Peter Sellers, which is essentially a TV film, but he's really brilliant in that. And it's interesting to see Helena Bonham Carter going back to her sort of merchant ivory costume drama roots, but holding up very well. The thing that, the one performance that kind of sideswiped me from watching the trailers was Guy Pearce when he plays Edward VIII. Alright. Guy Pearce has become one of these actors who kind of turns up for little bits, like he turns up at the end of the road. Yeah. And you just think, Oh, that's Guy Pearce, and see, that's very convincing, and I just like the kind of slightly shriveled, sleazy way that he's done the character. He turns up for Little Bit and in Little Bit of the Hurt Locker as well. <laughs> Is he one of the, um, <laughs> the contract soldiers with Ray Fiennes who gets killed off after coming on screen? Yeah, because you, you, you kind of think, oh, hey, why is he, he should be, his name should be at the top of the credits, and then, oh, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, I'm picking up, yes, I'm picking up the check. Oh, Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I recommend everyone go and see it. There was there were stories that it's packing out afternoon screenings all, o all over the country, which is a sign of the film doing really, being you know, really proud. Well. The question is whether people are going to see it because they love Colin Firth or because they're interested in the subject matter. Is it better or worse than his performance in St. Drinian's? <laughs> I think I don't need to answer that, do I? <laughs> I think that's a rhetorical question. Yeah. Although they aren't going to make, if they're making a third one, he's apparently not going to be in it. Because their char his character's been written out. I'm surprised they even made a second one. <laughs> well, you know, the, the sums out added up, apparently, but it is horribly sleazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that's your UK top ten. Any of them take your fancy? There's a lot of them. There's probably more to avoid than to see, unfortunately. But, uh Take your pick between the top two. Yeah, definitely. Lying Hard Radio. Wow, onto the cult film of the week. Into the Night, which is, uh, since we're, this is the first show back after Christmas, I thought, well, let's break ourselves in easy and do a comedy, although it is, you know, a, a, as will become clear, a comedy with slightly troubled production roots. Directed by John Landis, who is widely regarded as one of the great comedy directors of the late 70s and early 80s, obviously National Lampoon's Animal House, The Blues Brothers, Trading Places, and of course, the great horror comedy, An American Werewolf in London. But this is sort of the point where, after Trading Places, people's knowledge of his career get a bit hazy. You know, if you ask someone in the street, name a John Landis film, they'd say any of the four that I mentioned. Yeah. But if you are, they wouldn't probably mention this. And I think it's largely because of the controversy which surrounded his section of the Twilight Zone film. Do you know this story? I'm just no, no. Um, basically, a load of um, filmmakers, uh, Steven Spielberg, George Miller, who made the Mad Max series, uh, John Landis, uh, Joe Dante, and uh, one other guy whose name I can't remember, all fans of the Twilight Zone, this great 1950s TV series yep. done by Rod Serling, and they decided to make a, a portmanteau film of it, doing, directing little bits and doing different stories. John Landis was shooting um, uh, a scene where an actor called Vic Murray is carrying two children through a lake and it's seen set in Vietnam, and the helicopter they were using in the scene crashed and killed all three of them, and there was a whole... Um, massive legal cases went on for the best part of three years about who was responsible. Both Landis and Spielberg were acquitted for manslaughter, but there's still a sort of a sort of undercurrent about were they we were they really responsible and were they kind of faking remorse and stuff. I mean, I think Landis, I think the decision was the right one, but I don't want to kind of get into the complexities yeah. of that because it, it's like the Polanski debate. There are arguments on both sides, but that doesn't mean you can't enjoy the films regardless mm -hmm. of what the person has done. So the plot is, um, Jeff Goldblum, who you probably know more, more from sort of Jurassic Park and Independence Day, um, he plays a guy called Ed Oaken, who is a boring middle-aged man who can't sleep. He's a chronic insomniac, he lives in a boring neighbourhood, he works in a boring office doing a boring job for his boss, who is incidentally played by David Cronenberg, the film director, and that will hint at one of the things that happens a lot in this film, which is you get lots of famous people turning up for two minutes and doing cameos. Um, one day he comes home early from work to find that his wife ha has been having an affair, completely under his nose and he's just been too sort of off to notice and he stands there's a brilliant moment where he kind of stands completely deadpan outside her bedroom window and the camera is in a long shot while you hear 
all the stuff that's going on. You know, classic sort of Landis, slightly adolescent Joe, but with a sort of punch in the middle yeah. of it. And he decides just randomly to kind of get over this, to go for a drive in the middle of the night. So he goes to the, uh, the car park of the airport where he works, and he's just kind of sitting there wondering, oh, what does this mean? At which point, a very glamorous and very young still, Michelle Pfeiffer lands on the bonnet of his car and begs him to drive away, because it turns out that she has been chased by a bunch of Iranian gangsters whom she has stolen some rare emeralds from, and then they go off into the night, hence the time and off on a whole series of adventures. To give you a flavour of what the film's like, I have the um, a portion of the soundtrack done by famous blues guitarist B.B. King. This is what plays over the opening credits to give you a rough idea of what the film's like. So what comes to mind when you hear that sort of stuff, apart from 80s? <laughs> I was, uh, was going to say 1980s, but... Uh... Yeah, I've got nothing apart from the 80s. You'll have to... Well, what comes to your mind? Well, B.B. King, obviously, he was in... It was in a sort of... An odd period in his career when he was doing a lot of, um, uh, film work. I think he actually contributed something to the soundtrack of Leaving Las Vegas, but I might be mistaken for that. Anyway... Here's the thing with Into the Night. Um, there are many 80s comedies which are kind of admired now for their kind of escapist quality. I mean, you think of things like Bachelor Party, the Tom Hanks film, and Ghostbusters, which I still think is, is quite ropely made. And you look back on those now and strip through all the kind of layers of their reputation, they don't hold up quite as well as you'd hope. Yeah. Um, so you, yeah, because I... I was watching, as a child, Ghostbusters was like, like the Holy Grail. Watching it back now, you're like... Mm. There's no chemistry between <laughs> the three when Bill Murray ends up carrying the film because the yeah. other two are just so bland. The as in the special effects with the um, the I don't know, HMS puffin stuff, the dogs or the hell's I don't know hell's creatures or whatever, basically just big rottweilers. Looks very, very rough. Yeah, the whole, <laughs> the whole ten minutes, the whole special effects ending is boring. Anyway, the thing with Into the Night is that it is every bit as ropey and every bit as silly as those films, but in a much more sort of fun and memorable way. I mean, it does start off as a very interesting film about kind of middle-class domesticity and tedium. I mean, Oaken is someone who is who looks like he has had all the fun sucked out of him by just the routine. I mean, the whole point about him not sleeping is that he is quite literally restless. He can't sleep not because of, you know, worrying about, you no know, stress at work or so forth, or worrying that his wife might be carrying on with someone else, but simply because I'm so bored. Yes. <laughs> so forth. And, um... So there's this strange kind of thing in his character that on the one hand he wants the excitement, on the other hand he has very little knowledge of this kind of dark underworld which exists in the city that he lives in and he doesn't have the guts to kind of, you know, put his toe in the water and find out what's going on. And what that means is that when you get the various events of Omingham and Michelle Pfeiffer, when you get them going to the houseboat that uh, her, her boss rents, when you get them going to the house of her brother who's an Elvis impersonator, when you get Jim Henson and um, no, Jonathan Demi turning up as gangsters in a hotel, mm -hmm. It feels less contrived than it otherwise might. I mean, the comparison with a more modern film is Date Night, the Steve Carell vehicle recently, in which the first ten minutes where they set up the characters is fine, but then it just descends into endless action sequences and you eventually stop caring. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> there is a certain... The central point of the film, if, you know, comedy should have a point, is that life needs to be unpredictable. And it's the spontaneity that is the thing that kind of, you know, not just stops you being bored, but makes you feel good to be alive. And as things move on, you get Oaken... You know, played very well by Jeff Goldblum. He doesn't exactly embrace all the stuff that happened to me. He doesn't say, yes, I want to be an emerald smuggler and get off with Michelle Pfeiffer. But he does come to realise that actually there is a whole world out there that I hadn't discovered yet and I've basically had a new lease of life. And the film ends, um, I mean, it's kind of, the phrase that I would use, it's, it's a film which is not so much an awakening as an asleepening because he does end up finally being able to sleep for the first time in years. Um... However, there is a slight twist in this. In that it, have you seen um, the Martin Scorsese film After Hours, which came out the same year? No, I haven't seen that one. Very similar kind of, it's the one which is, it's Griffin Dunn, who famously was um, the dead one in American Wealth in London, the guy who, you know, every time he appears, he looks slightly more, you know, disintegrating as a corpse. And it's him, he, he is a guy who is uh, stuck in Soho, the American Soho, and is desperately trying to get home over the course of a night and everything, and all manner of things go wrong until eventually he gets dropped off at his office and no at the end and it all works out slightly okay although they did have to change the endings and think in the original version he gets killed um so you have that kind of comparison and it's the same sort of thing with into the night in a sense that okin's decision to kind of stick with michelle fiver's character who's called diane is less motivated by let's go and do some more crazy stuff as Okay, I'll help you this, but then I have to go home. Okay, I'll steal the car, but then I have to go home. And I know I really have to go home. Yeah. 
And the thing that holds the film together is it's you have this very believable, romantic, believable, certainly in a Hollywood sense, relationship between Ed and Diane. It's that kind of sort of awkward consummation of um, Jeff Goldblum's desire to see more of the world along with Michelle Pfeiffer's eventual realisation that actually he's a really nice guy and he genuinely wants to help her. Yeah. So that even if, like I say, the world is hard to accept, even if you have, it's like, okay, hang on, so they're being chased by American gangsters, they've borrowed a car, sorry, Iranian gangsters, they've borrowed the car of an Elvis impersonator, and meanwhile, David Bowie with an earwig moustache is hunting them down. But I believe in their characters enough to kind of say, well, I forgive all the rest of the film. So, uh, as a comedy, I think it works very well in the sense that you do laugh throughout it. it there's nothing in it which, I mean, there are little things in it now which... No, are of the time yeah. and w don't work quite so well. I kind of see you nodding your head as if I'm going to come to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I was just, just, just... Yeah. So, there are, I mean, aside from the subtleties of the central relationship, and there are a few good lines, there are lots of kind of laugh-out-loud set pieces. The best of them is where it's in the initial chase in the car park when uh, the henchman, one of whom is played by John Landis, and, you know, if you can spot him, he's the guy with a slight scar and the massive beard, because that's what John Landis has always looked like. They crash into this van, and they all get out of their car, kind of posing with their guns and saying, okay, come on, show us what you got. The four guys get out of the van, and you could be... And they essentially look like the A-team, but with even worse haircuts, you think. <laughs> Run for it. <laughs> <laughs> so there are just little bits like that, which, and there, there's another great scene involving the henchman where Landis is, because he's the clumsy one out of the four of them, and he keeps trying to open a door and walking into it. So eventually he shoots the doorknob off <laughs> and then rips the door off its hinges just to come through and get to the next room. There are also, I mean, if you're a Landis fan, which I am, there are kind of the same sort of in-jokes and motifs. You know, so you have, there is a reference to Animal House in the way that um, they wander onto a film set at one point, and Jeff Goldblum leans against a wall and it turns out to be made of rubber and he falls on his face. <laughs> so there are little kind of things like that. There is also a possible reference to Get Carter in the scene where um, one of the guys who is meant to be helping Diane, he, his wife gets kind of carried out onto a beach and of course if you've seen the ending of Get Carter, don't go on a beach with gangsters because bad <laughs> stuff will happen and you'll end up being dumped into the sea. And then you have Landis's panache, or so penchant rather, for cameo, so you get, basically, it's, it's like he went through his spiel dial and said, okay, um, is that uh, David Cronenberg? Yeah, are you busy right, tomorrow? Do you want to come on and be in a film for two minutes? Yeah, great, fine. So you get David Cronenberg, who of course is a great Canadian horror director, turning up as Ed Oaken's boss, who you know, runs the electronic company. Jim Henson turns up for two minutes as man on phone in lobby, whom the gangsters kind of push off and say, you know, we need to make this call. Jonathan Lynn, who of course was one of the writers of Yes Minister, plays a tailor who shop gets basically shot to ribbons by the people. And Jonathan Demi, like I said, turns up as a gangster, although he's wearing sunglasses, so it's quite difficult to tell. Like I said, the performances are pretty decent. I mean, Pfeiffer was still a sort of rising star when she did it, because she'd just done Scarface with Al Pacino and Brian De Palma, and it was around the time that she was, you know, sort of still establishing herself. Immediately after that, she did a film called Lady Hawk, which was a medieval fantasy directed by the guy who did the Lethal Weapon films with a pop soundtrack, and it really didn't work. <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't heard of that one, so I'm guessing it didn't do business. <laughs> no, uh, yeah. It's, it, 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 it sort of made half its money back, and there were interesting things in it, but the soundtrack really doesn't work. But the most interesting performance in it is kind of is Jeff Goldblum, because we kind of think of him now as playing the geeky outsider who has a sort of alien blank-faced impression. I mean, if you've seen David Cronenberg's The Fly, there is that quality to him. Yeah. And it's interesting that because of that, you think, well, he wouldn't be the natural choice for playing an ordinary, boring guy. But because he looks sort of slightly out of place, he can play everything completely deadpan, and therefore it becomes funnier than just someone going, hey, isn't this weird, all the time. Yeah. Now the faults with the film, like all the cult films we discussed, there are little things wrong with them, even if, you know, in the case of something like The Wicked Man, they're very, very small. In the final third, things do start to run out of steam. The central problem with the narrative is that if you compare it again to After Hours, which takes place over the course of a single night, this is stretched out over two nights. And so you do start, once they kind of start hiding out in the gardens during the daytime and trying to get some sleep, you do start thinking, okay, well, why hasn't Ed's wife called the police? Why aren't his work looking for him? Why, why would any of this still be happening? And <laughs> once you start thinking those things, it does start to unravel a bit. Sorry, were you going to say something? No, no, I've just, uh, I've, I'll, I'll, I'll let you get the end of the floor saying I'll have to, or the end of this cult section, I've got an announcement about uh, a local football game's been called off. Which oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I'll get through these quickly then. So you do uh, start this kind of contrived section. There are also little 
things, I mean, it was the point in Landis's career when he did basically start to become a bit rambling and self-indulgent in terms of, um, the, certainly, I mean, he's famous for putting lots of gratuitous nudity in his films. And when he was making Animal House, and even you know, the moment in Trading Places where Jamie Lee Curtis takes a top off, you think, well, you're a young filmmaker, you don't really know what you're doing, so you can sort of get away with it. But yeah. by this time, when you can afford to have David Bowie in your film, it's like, no, you need to grow up a bit now. Yeah. <laughs> The other possible flaw, and I don't entirely buy this, that the film has drawn some accusations of being racist. Um, do you remember that bit in Trading Places where Dan Aykroyd comes in dressed as a Jamaican and he's blacked up when they're all hiding on the train? Yes. Did you find that scene uncomfortable? Because I did. Yeah, but if you, if you look at, uh, just to take a, a jump to the latest thing from David Williams and Matt Lucas, that, that's... Things haven't really progressed a lot. <laughs> no, and that's quite charming. When I haven't seen "Come Fly with Me" or whatever it's it's called, except for little clips on YouTube, and it doesn't look particularly funny. Yeah. But the point, I mean, so you in this you have in the same way as Dan Aykroyd played a Jamaican for about two minutes in Trading Places, and that is the train sequence, and that is the weakest bit of the film. You have John Landis playing an Iranian, and all the Iranians in the film are portrayed as being stupid and trigger happy, mm. which obviously, you know, if you did that today, they they get a bit more annoyed. I think it's slightly unsettling. I mean, you could argue that, like a lot of things, it's a product of its time. I mean, we're talking about, you know, the famous story surrounding the A-team of when they were shooting Mr. T's stunts, they would get a white stunt double, cover him in cocoa powder and shoot him from a long way away. I mean, that stuff was still going on in the 1980s. So. Really? Yeah, that's absolutely true. If you've seen the <laughs> Justin Lee Collins program, Bring Back the A-team, that's straight from the horse's mouth. God. <laughs> yeah, he was the only black actor working on that. I, no, they, they said the official reason was because they couldn't afford a stunt double. Well, if you can get Mr. T, you can get someone who looks like Mr. T. Yeah, that, that, for that, that time, the A-team had such a big budget. Yeah. No, mate. <laughs> yeah, so there are little questionable things about it, but I think if you're... To sum up, it's two-thirds of a good film, and when it goes silly at the end, you sort of forgive it because you like the characters enough. I mean, I'll see anything with David Bowie in, even if it is, you know, absolute beginners, which is complete pants. <laughs> and in this, he does kind of... It is one of his better works when he's kind of playing a henchman and he meets um, Jeff Goldman on the street and says, you're very good, aren't you? We'll talk about this a little bit more. Uh, it's not as good as Trading Places. It's not as you know, interesting as After Hours, but it is enjoyable. And like I say, if you're a fan of 80s comedy, you'll find something to enjoy. Exactly. Well, I was going to say, uh, one thing... After I say, because during Grunt in the 80s, you got like, not, well, the fly wasn't 80s, but Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park 1 and 2, and then he was in Independence Day and stuff like that. You just think, why isn't he in more stuff? <laughs> I think. I know he's doing a lot of theatre work, that's. Yeah. Weird, but surely the amount of rubbish and actors and. I'd rather have him in a film than Shia LaBeouf. Well, I think he's a bit old to play Shia LaBeouf roles, <laughs> but uh, I think he's just a very odd screen presence. I mean, he does have that kind of look like he is from another planet. I mean, if they yeah. ever remade John Carpenter's Starman, he'd be perfect. Yeah. But, um, you know, not that I'm encouraging anyone to remake Starman because it's a great film. I don't know. I mean, I think it's... He's probably just got, well, my other thing where he's got enough money, he thinks, I'll just dabble. Yeah. Pick and choose. But uh, we, we do need more of him in cinemas because he is a very engaging and interesting screen presence. Perhaps he should phone up Robert De Niro and say, this is what I'm doing. <laughs> you pick and choose your roles. <laughs> Rather than, yeah, I'm afraid I'll do it. Then we'll make it a better output for Robert De Niro. Or he just give some advice to Nicolas Cage. Anyway, <laughs> Season of the Witch with Jeff Goldblum in the lead role. Give him a massive wig. That'll be interesting. Yeah, but see, it, would just, it would just add a different quirk, whereas you just think you're going to get that dead-eyed performance from Nicolas Cage where you think, oh, you're better than this. <laughs> yeah, although there shouldn't be a pointed season of The Witch in which he goes, I know how we can defeat the witch. Let's upload the virus from an <laughs> Apple Mac computer. <laughs> True. This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Now, 2011. Yeah. It is a new year. It's as upon us. Um, so we should, uh, we're going to give a, a brief list of, no, just a quick rundown of the films that we're looking forward to. So do you want to do this like alternating? Or yeah, something? I would say what we've done was we've picked five choices each. Um, I'll go first and then, and then we'll just sort of, the ones we just want to tip you off about. My five aren't ones that I'm desperately anxious and like, going to queue up the day before to see, but they're just ones that are, have a little bit of drama and newsworthy stuff about them that I just thought I'd raise them, mm -hmm. a bit of discussion on them. The first one is Blitz, which is a British film. It's got some good British actors, David Morrissey, Paddy Constantine, I'm not, not, not sure about his name. Constantine. Constantine. Yeah. And, Shane, the guy yeah. who works with Shane Meadows yeah. a lot. And, and Jason Statham. Jason Statham. <laughs> but it's, the reason why I want to mention it, it's, it, it looks a, a, a really good, well put together film, but it has a thing about a cop, it's about a, a policeman, uh, a cop killer. 
if you pardon the term. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's bits of the trailer, and it's and the reason why I want to raise it is it's going to be when it comes out later in the year, it's going to be a bit of a hot topic because the, the trailer just reminds me of the Raoul Moat thing where he just ah. walked up and shot the policeman, and I just thought Ooh, too soon. Um, so. We'll have to see how that one goes, so I want to keep an eye out for that one. Okay. And I say the trailer looks good, and the, the bad guy, um, I forget the guy, I forget the last name, it's an Irish, Irish actor. Um, Brendan Gleeson? No, no, it's just a young lad, he was in a, an ITV drama recently with uh, Keely, Keely Hawes, but, uh, yeah. I forget, but yeah. It's, <laughs> Sorry, I can't stand Keely Hawes. Yeah, she, um, it looks like it has potential, but I just think possibly too soon. Okay. When's it, when's it due out? I think it's going to be like uh, September, October sort of time. Okay. So maybe it'll be a, a bit less soon by the yeah. time we get to that. Okay. My first choice, which is actually coming out, it's either next week or the week after, depending on which dates you believe. It's Black Swan, which is the new film from Darren Aronofsky, who made you know, Pie, Requiem for Dream, The Fountain, and most recently The Wrestler, for which Mickey Rourke was uh, Oscar-nominated and widely received his comeback. It's about Natalie Portman playing... Natalie Portman, who is often very irritating, I mean, she's in the Star Wars prequels, so that's not her fault, but she's also done bad stuff like Closer and My Blueberry Night, which I still haven't forgiven her for. I haven't seen that one, is that? Oh, oh it's horrible. It's just, don't, <laughs> just don't go there. Horrible, Is quirky. it more annoying than the, you know, when the romantic scenes between her and Hayden Christensen go, I love you so much. <laughs> is You're it breaking that? my heart, no, just go away. <laughs> just cut his hand off already and do us all a favour. Um... <laughs> No, it's it's more annoying as that because I think, you no, know, with the Star Wars prequels, you'd think, well, you know, it's not your fault that you're in yeah. this bad of him and you're basically doing what George Lucas is telling you to, which is basically don't offend anyone so we can make more money. But anyway, it's a, she plays a ballerina who uh, is cast in Swan Lake. She develops a rivalry with another ballerina played by Mila Kunis and psychological horror ensues. Now, obviously, this owes something to um, the Pal and Pressburger film The Red Shoes, which is absolutely brilliant. And there are elements of their previous film as well, Black Narcissus, which is a psychological thriller about nuns and sexual temptation. No, I know, when, when I say it like that, you think, <laughs> silly, but actually it's a really great film. It turns into a sort of Dario Argento film at the end, even though it predates Suspiria by about 30 years. I'm a big fan of psychological thrillers. I like films which are about obsession and which use art as a kind of way of vocalising that, and I think it, even if bits of it don't hang together, it should be intriguing, so go and see it. Yeah, my next choice is a film called Paul. Um, it's a great name for a film. Um, but it's, it's the latest one. Are you involved in the production of this by any chance? Yeah, they phoned me up and said, what should we call that one? Uh, call it Paul. <laughs> no, uh, yes, it's working title, Mr. Young. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's the latest uh, film from uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Uh, it's not directed by Edgar Wright, uh, so it kind of cuts them a bit loose from the, the usual, the success of Hot Fuzz and Shaun of the Dead. And basically they're two nerds on a road trip across America and they come across an alien played by Seth Rogen, uh, voiced by Seth Rogen, and he is, <laughs> yes, <laughs> he, um, he's not your standard alien, he doesn't want to probe them and stuff like that, he just wants to get drunk and pick up girls and stuff like that, he's kind of just like, a, well he is, he's a Seth Rogen in alien form. Uh, the reason why I want to mention it, it, look, it looks fairly funny in the trailer, but it, I reckon it's going to be a bit of a watershed moment for them too. Um, Simon Pegg, the last two two things, uh, well, last three, Birkenhair, Run Fat Boy Run, and the... How's Loose Friends and Alienate Yes, the one, yeah. I was, was going to say Toby Young, for, but I forgot the name. Yeah, that one. Uh, they've not really set the world on fire. No, um, although Birkenhead's a very good film. Yeah, it's been in terms of box office returns. Yeah. Is, has he, has he come, sort of come to the end of his little 15 minutes of fame? And it's a very harsh thing to say, but in terms of box office, is he going to move from being a lead actor to being a supporting actor in future films? So this will be a key thing on film to see how that goes. Plus, no Edgar Wright, so it'll be interesting to see how that, how it works on stage, on, on screen, sorry. And Seth Rogen as well. Seth Rogen, his, we'll mention him later in the new releases. He's kind of just, his jokes wearing out as well. That, I um, think he wore out a long time. <laughs> he's on borrowed time. Yes. So he's um, it's it's kind of a, a pivotal moment for all of them. And Nick Nick Frost seems like a bit of a reluctant actor. He just like he, he'll just he doesn't do. He's not as prolific as uh, as the other ones. But it'd be interesting to see how what happens after this film, how it's received in America and here to see if if there's any more from them. So. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, uh, when you kind of m made the uh, the fluff about on stage, I'd love to see Edgar Wright doing Scott Pilgrim in a theatre. <laughs> How would you do that? <laughs> so, incidentally, um, Danny Boyle's production of Frankenstein is opening at the end of next month, I think, at yeah. the National. So if you want to get tickets, now's your chance. Um, my second choice is the remake of Brighton Rock, um, new adaptation of the Graham Greene novel about a young up-and-coming mobster called Pinky Brown. 
um, which is a more threatening uh, name than you might think. Uh, he commits murder and basically marries the woman who could expose him. Now, the original version from the 1940s stars Richard Attenborough in one of his better performances. This is the debut film by Rowan Joffe, who is the son of Roland Joffe, who made The Mission and The Killing Fields, but right. also made Captivity, with no less said about the better, because it's awful. Um, stars Sam Riley, who was brilliant as uh, Ian Curtis in the Anton Corbin film Control, when he, you know, the Joy Division biopic, and because you know, he's a musician at the same time, so he hasn't done much yeah. film work, but this looks like it could be his big sort of the thing that cements him as a film star because the trailer makes him look really threatening. And the, the interesting creative decision is that they've, instead of restaging it in World War II, they've taken it forward to the 1960s, so it's a clash between mods and rockers, which suggests that, you know, quadrophenia is going to be invoked, and I think the success of the film will come on how closely it's invoked, mm -hmm. but I think it will be interesting, and I think Sam Riley is a good actor. What we do? My next that comes out in February, incidentally, we should point out when these are coming out. Um, my next one, which I haven't said that, I've got no idea when that's out, I know it's out during this, yeah, possibly mm -hmm. toward, I think it might be a Christmas release. Um, it's Mission Impossible for Ghost Protocol, mm -hmm. and the reason why I want to mention this one. Um, I said Mission Impossible series has not been brilliant, but I think it's another one. It represents an important landmark in Tom Cruise's career because last year we had Night and Day, and the whole idea behind that was Cameron Diaz is pretty, he's good looking, let's put him in a film. We'll not bother with the plot and it'll make money. It didn't. It tanked. So yes. it'll be interesting to see whether if this might just represent the time where the public sort of either with them or against them, so to speak. So it'll be interesting to see how that one goes down. Well, the Mission Impossible films have essentially become Tom Cruise's pension plan, haven't they? They've yeah. become the thing that he turns to when no one else will give yeah. him work. Because Mission Impossible 3 wasn't brilliant, but it made money. As They all made money and without being brilliant films, so it'll be interesting to see whether he has alienated a lot of his fan base, the whole Scientology stuff. Which Apparently he's still big in Japan. <laughs> 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 not, that that, not that that's a pejorative thing, I mean, uh, Japan's great, but anyway, um... Is that a height joke? No! <laughs> <laughs> of course not! <laughs> I hadn't thought about it in that way! Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is actually a Tom Cruise day in Japan, and he visits it every year. Really? Yeah! Because they love him to bits. Anyway, um, <laughs> the third film on my list, which is coming out in March, is The Adjustment Bureau, which you may not have heard about. It's adaptation of Philip K. Dick's uh, short story starring Matt Damon, whom I think is really great, and Emily Blunt. Story is Damon is a smooth-talking congressman who is tipped for political office, but his life is thrown off course by the arrival of a ballerina. You can see the common thread here, mm -hmm. uh, played by Emily Blunt. They want to get together, you know, they, they're in love, but there are strange forces that are keeping them apart, and there might be some kind of government conspiracy at heart. So it's a classic Philip K. Dick thing, if you know, um, corporate or government paranoia, strange um, mix of identities and you no know, darker surroundings. And you no, know, if you look at the, the past adaptations of his work, obviously Blade Runner, which is amazing, Total Recall, the Paul Verhoeven film, which is nuts, but actually has the kernel of substance at the heart of Dick's story. And most recently, Scanner Darkly, the Richard Linklater film, which was done with rotoscoped animation, it was very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's directed by George Nolfi, who co-wrote The Bourne Ultimatum, so there is a certain amount of prestige behind it, and I think that Matt Damon is a very likeable actor. The other thing that's kind of making me want to see that it features a cameo performance from Ter Terence Stamp, who of course is General Zod in <laughs> Superman 2, and any film in which he gets to turn up and chew the scenery is worth seeing for that alert. True, yeah, I've seen, I've, I'll watch Matt Damon in anything, and it, I've watched him in a lot of substandard films, stuff like the Good Shepherd, which weren't brilliant films, That's a bit but, dull, but they were good, good perform he always turns in a good performance uh, yes, every did. time. Particularly so, in Invictus recently, where he did a very convincing South African I haven't accent. seen that one, it's on the, it's on the list to come, uh, from generic rental online store. <coughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's pretty good. I love film. Yes. You love film. <laughs> we all <laughs> finish the sentence there. Um, another, my, my next choice is uh, Twilight 4A, Breaking Dawn, whatever you want to call it. They've split the final book into two, um, into two films, like the Harry Potter thing. I think possibly to, to make money and basically because it's such a long book and it's, it's going to be interesting because I want to see, one, I've read the books, uh, where they make the cut, you know, like where you end the first film is going to be interesting because that yeah. kind of could make, because it, it, it's a, such a weird tone, that book, that if they end it on the wrong tone, people are going to think, well, I'm, I'm not going to watch the next one because it was such a depressing end and all stuff like that. Plus, it's brought with it a bit of a PG-13 sort of audience from America in terms of like teenage girls and vampires and stuff. It steps up its game, so to speak, in the fourth book in terms of the whole, the first three have been about abstinence and uh, uh, Ed, Edward doesn't want to go near her because he's fine, he can't control his urge and blah, blah, and she, yes. he won't do anything until we become vampires. 
basically, well, they get it on, they knock boots, whatever you want to say. There's, there's no way of getting around this. No. <laughs> That's for all the dads, listen. Um, and it's going to be interesting how they, t they take the tone of that. Plus, the one thing leads to another, and it leads to a pregnancy storyline. Spoiler. Uh, yeah, people wouldn't know anyway. Um, and so, and as, it, as Daniel was saying before, uh, when one of the records was on, a complicated birth, shall we say? So a difficult birth, which is yeah. what this production hasn't had, fortunately. Yeah, the um, the director said that he thinks by not showing it, it might it'll it's more evocative, but it's also a key plot point to show the birth. So yeah, I'm no, really interested to see how they I actually mean, I think, tackle it. I think that one, that bit of the book, because it comes right at the end, won't actually happen until four B. Mm. But there's always the possibility. Um, my fourth choice, because we need to canter through these if we're going to do any of the new releases. Um, source code with the new film from Duncan Jones. Well, we can extend into the up until twelve if you want. You sure? Yeah, just keep just keep rolling. And just you no, know, just do like John Landis and make it a little <laughs> bit longer, a little bit longer, and get more guests. Um, so the uh, the fourth choice of mine, which comes out on April the first, Source Code, which is the new film from Duncan Jones, who is the son of David Bowie. Again, a nice little through line. Uh, he previously made a smash with Moon, that science fiction film. Did you see Moon when it came I out? I haven't seen it. It's one I want to see. It's, uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it's a relatively simple story, but a brilliant kind of introspective science fiction film like a lot of science fiction should be. Story is Jake Gyllenhaal is uh, a soldier who takes part in a government experiment whereby he he relives a train bombing over and over in eight minute sections to find out who the perpetrators are so they can stop another terrorist attack on another train and obviously that does link somewhat in with what you were talking about with Blitz, you know, the, the whole thing of is it too soon to make a film about yeah. train bombings when we're getting, you know, we're still celebrating the not celebrating, but still marking the anniversaries of um, seven seven and so forth. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the, just by looking at that plot synopsis, it, it owes something to two traditions. One is to kind of the memory related thrillers like Memento and the Jacket. Did you see the Jacket? That film with Adrian Brody as a, a schizophrenic song. Yes, uh, I have seen that. Was that that's the one Kira Knightley in it? Doing the slightly dodgy American accent. Yes, Jack Starks is dead. <laughs> it's like yes, you can sort of do it, but it's not brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's that sort of thing, and obviously that itself links back to Jacob's Ladder, you know, is all this action taking place in someone's head, and obviously Inception you could also mm. invoke. So it's that tradition, it also is something to the things like Twelve Monkeys and Slaughterhouse-Five, the Kurt Vonnegut novel, insofar as it's about someone who has lost all kind of sense of, it's, you know, in the case of Vonnegut, being literally unstuck in time, and you have a hero whose predicament is essentially fatalistic because he is condemned to relive this horrible event, I mean, in Twelve Monkeys it's the own character's death. Mm -hmm. And that's not a plot spoiler because you see that right at the beginning. Um, so, so you have you, know, you have this idea of someone trying to fatally prevent a new disaster by looking at the past and the twist with those sorts of films is it's actually a small event which they missed which actually causes the disaster and it's another whole time loop thing continues. But I think Duncan Jones has got great promise as a director and you should support him because he's a great low budget British filmmaker. Would it be cruel to sum it up as exploding Groundhog Day? <laughs> <laughs> It would, wouldn't it? It's got a I bit more it, to it than that. No, I, I don't know. I mean, there are elements of Groundhog Day to it, but if, put it this way, if Bill Murray turns up in a cameo, we know he's lost the plot. True. There's, I mean, with, with Groundhog Day and stuff like, um, film like Vantage Point, I mean, where they show the same thing over and over again. Yeah, which of course links back to Rashomon. Yeah, it is, it is, it is a good, it's a mark of a good director. Can they stop that feeling repetitive and make it fresh each time? So that'll be, that'll be a good test. I yeah, I mean, in the case of Vantage Boy, by the time they got to the fourth time round, it did get a bit dull, so they had to start blowing everything up. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but Memento works in that way as well, because you keep flicking backwards and forwards with mm -hmm. that. Yeah, so that's, that's a way you can tell someone's either just saying, oh, we'll just repeat that, or has a, add a little twist to it. Yeah. Um, my final film is Red State, which is uh, Kevin Smith's latest film. Uh, Kevin Smith directed Clark's, uh, Dog Clerks, Dogman, Clerks, <laughs> not the shoe shop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bank Clarks. No. <laughs> what, was it Randall and what is the other one? Anyway, carry on. Hopkirk. <laughs> <laughs> Deceased. <laughs> um, it, his last film, uh, his last few films haven't really set the world on fire. Again, um, that seems a bit of a theme through my, running through my, can people save their careers? <laughs> but uh, his last film was Copper with starring Tracy Morgan and Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis looking even more bored than usual in that film. And it's his first stab at horror. Um, he's normally does like these oh, stoner dear. comedies and stuff like that. And it's, it's horror set in the deep south about religious ministers and stuff like that. And it's supposed to, I don't think it's going to be... It's not going to be anything supernatural as such, as such, but just more about these crazy rednecks. <laughs> if you pardon the, pardon so the term, we've come right back to deliverance again. <laughs> Every week, shall we just shall we just do that next week to get it out of the way? 
True. Next okay. week we'll be reviewing Deliverance. <laughs> That'll be the cult film. And good choice. Yeah, so it's it's been interesting to see because as I say, is 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 previous career and his successes have involved like stoner comedies with people like Good Witty Banner Battles and Ford. So can you make the shift? It'd be interesting to see what we did. The script which he put forward, um, he normally gets his film made by the Weinstein 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 Company. And they said, We don't like that. Uh, we're not gonna fund that. So he went and made it independently for four million. So it's made on a, a budget which oh, might okay. might be better because cop out was a sign of what happens when an independent director gets a lot of money and he kinda didn't have a clue what to do with it. Yeah, I mean the ultimate crime in that in his career is Jersey Girl, which is another example of that happening. Yes. Jersey Girl, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, I find it's, it's about a six out of ten film for me. That I, I do think it's funny that it's they had so to mawkish though. To, it's just funny that I had to edit Jennifer Lopez out straight away that, that she was going to be more of a plot point. I went, people really don't like her. Let's <laughs> <laughs> re-edit it. But uh, so yeah, that's that's my choice. Um, and say so none of them are ones that are really definitely going to cute and see. I mean. I, th I, I don't know, there's nothing really struck us, I, thought, I must say that, I must definitely say that, but these are just ones I thought had a bit of a, a kooky and interesting angle. Okay, um, my final choice, and um, this is a much more sort of provisional because we don't know the release date of this, it's Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy, latest adaptation of the famous novel by uh, John le Carre, which is based on the real-life events surrounding the Cambridge spies, you know, these four people who, in the 1930s, um, defected to the Russians, essentially, in, you know, spied on um, the British government during World War Two, So you have Gary Oldman, who's great uh, in almost anything except for Lost in Space. He wasn't. Uh, <laughs> so I was just... Uh, no, carry on. Gary, Gary Oldman appeared in this film, uh, which my friend recommended. It's a film called Tiptoes. I haven't seen it. Gary Oldman plays Gary a, Oldman. a dwarf. Okay. It's, <laughs> and it's all... And it, it, it done... And he, like, it's, it's, is it done uh, with forced perspective? Or no, I, I don't know how they did it. I'm going to have to get on the internet and find out how it was done because there's some. It, it's not like Lord of the Rings where like Frodo's at the front of the thing or Gandalf's at the front and Frodo's at the back of the shot. Um, it's it was bizarre okay. and not not a great film. But I just thought, what was Gary Oldman thinking? What was Gary Oldman on when yeah. he decided to do that? Because it was kind of thing. In terms of timeline, it was sandwiched between Dark Knight and and Batman Begins. Oh, really? So right. it's not like one of his earlier things. It was like. Matthew McConaughey's in it. That'll, that'll give you the benchmark of its quality. <laughs> okay, no, that makes a lot more sense. Uh, so yeah, it, Gary Oldman stepping into the uh, shoes previously. He's playing George Smiley, which of course was famously filled by Alec Guinness in the TV series, which also had the late great Sir Ian Richardson in. And it's going to be very hard for anything to follow that. I mean. Le Carre's an interesting figure. I mean, when he was in his prime in the 60s and 70s, both as a writer and in terms of adaptations, his works did have a relevance because they, you know, the Cold War was still going on and it was about political treachery and so forth. And most recently, he's sort of gone off the ball. I mean, were you, were you a fan of The Constant Gardener, which was based on his work? I haven't seen it because it just looked... I don't know, just from the trailers and reading about it, it just did not appeal to me one little bit. So <laughs> it's okay, there, there are things in it that work very well, but Rachel Weiss is incredibly annoying, as she so often is, and it is, <laughs> it does have that slightly Harsh but fair. <laughs> Sorry? Harsh but fair. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, she's rubbish in The Lovely Bones as well, but no, that's, an, that's a flawed film rather than just a bad film. Um, so... <laughs> The, the Constant Gardener is fine, it does have an incredibly melodramatic ending and it's not up there with Moraes's, uh, Fernando Moraes's previous work, City of God, but anyway. So the Carrie, who was involved in the script writing for that and is actually on board as a co-screenwriter for this, which is sort of understandable, but he has been off the boil for about ten years. Um, the story is essentially, like you say, it's a retired agent uh, called George Smiley who's been played by Gary Oldman, he's called out of retirement to basically find the mole in MI6, and you know, there's all sorts of you know, counterintelligence and treachery going on, and a subplot involving basically everyone in the circus, as it's known, mm -hmm. um, sleeping with his ex-wife. <laughs> and that actually has a kind of central twist. The thing that attracts me to this is, first off, two things. First off, it's directed by Thomas Alfredson, who of course made Let the Right One In, which is an extraordinary horror film, and I think it'll be interesting to take something which, like the vampire story, is so kind of well-worn and been done to death, mm -hmm. and see if he can pull off the same trick by making it relevant and fresh again. The other thing is, so f I mean, all of these names are kind of floating around because it's still filming, but it has a great cast. Gary Oldman, obviously, Colin Firth is in it, uh, Tom Hardy, Mark Strong, and Benedict Cumberbatch, who, of course, is the new Sherlock Holmes, and we've got a new series of um, Mark Gatiss's Sherlock coming up later this year on TV. Good, good. So I think if you're a fan of Sherlock, go and see him. Right, what we'll do is we'll stick on a quick record where me and Daniel catch our breaths, yes. and then we'll be back with this week's new releases. Of the district, this is Lionheart Radio. Kasir been there with Underdog. 
Not that you have a record playing during our movies. Movie I know. <laughs> it's, it's complete sacrilege. I'm going to complain to Ofcom. <laughs> don't get Ofcom involved. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry, it involves have so much dirt on don't me. Don't say the O word. <laughs> right. If you, we've mentioned the top ten, we've mentioned the cult film, we've mentioned some films for 2011 which are going to be out later in the year. Um, but if you want to see, if you go to the cinema this weekend, we can give you some recommendations and some some cautionary advice on yeah. what to avoid. So you want to start with the Green Hornet? <laughs> yeah, let's start with the warning. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, warning may contain bad film. Um, <laughs> Kind of giving it away. <laughs> Green Hornet, which is the latest superhero comic book film, uh, this time based on a 1930s radio series in the 1960s, which then became a TV series uh, in the 1960s starring uh, Bruce Lee. Were you familiar with the Green Hornet at all before this? Came I wasn't, out? no. I mean, if, if you've seen starring Bruce Lee, Bruce, uh, in what would essentially be the sidekick role, yeah. the main actor obviously didn't really... Well, he was obviously secondary to Bruce Lee, which most people would be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, especially if you were fighting him. Um, so the story is, Seth Rogen, <sighs> bad start, is a playboy, surprise, surprise. Is he a playboy slacker? <laughs> he's a playboy slacker with curly hair and he, yeah, uh, whose father, played by Tom Wilkinson in a, a kind of phoned-in scenery tune performance, he owns a publishing uh, empire, his father dies under mysterious circumstances, leaving the Empire to him. Starts off kind of just wanting to party around like he always has done. Then the guy who served his father, played by um, famous uh, pop star and act, film actor Jay Chow, who's big in uh, the Far East, says that his father was actually a more complicated person than you might think, and he takes him to this warehouse where there's all sorts of guns and this modified car called Black Beauty, I think it is, that they, they use. Mm. So, and they decide basically to go out crime-fighting and use the newspaper that he owns to um, print their story and their successes the very next day. Here's the thing with the Green Hornet. We are getting to the point with comic book and uh, superhero adaptations where there is there is very limited space left to go. I mean, you saw Kick-Ass, right, didn't you, last year? Yes. And you liked it very much? Yeah. I think it was, there were some elements which we, we can't mention, which... <laughs> the, the torture scenes were <laughs> yeah. a bit tough. Uh, and obviously, Chloe Moretz's um, certain line. But um, the thing about Kick-Ass was that it... it it's, it took a lot of the superhero and comic book cliches and basically reinvented or reinterpreted them with a very literal comic book style. I mean, in the same way that Sin City did, although that was boring because, you know, Mark, um, Rodriguez couldn't um, hang that together for various reasons. I mean, this this story does contain a lot of elements that we've seen before. I mean, the whole thing about um, the guy, it's having a superhero identity but also having a relationship with the media, which is almost uh, straight off lifted from Spider-Man. After Kick-Ass, it's very hard to do kind of ordinary guys going out and being heroes in a tongue-in-cheek way. And, of course, we've got The Dark Knight Rises coming up next summer, the Christopher Nolan's, the final part of his, what he calls his Gotham trilogy, yeah. which is probably going to kick everything out of the park anyway. True. Uh, We're going to be, unfortunately, 2011 is going to be ram-packed full of superheroes. You've got Thor, you've got the Green Lantern, and basically they're shoehorning a lot of them in because they've got the Avengers projects lined up for 2012. Which I actually suspect is not going to do that. I mean, obviously all the comic yeah. fans will go, but it, I don't think it's going to do as well as a lot of people I think. I think it's going to be horrendous because what will happen is you could either not give enough time to the, the superheroes, in, in which case, what's the point? Or if you give them too much time, the bad guy in it is going to have very little threat that it'll just fall away. So... Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be a bit of a, a mess. <laughs> yeah, it'll be, it'll it should it'll, it'll be a bit like you know the Justice League cartoons, yeah, where it's Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman turning up, and you just think, well, give me enough screen time so I can focus on one of them instead of just demonstrating, oh, they all have powers, yeah. as if we didn't know that. Um, so, so there there is a very small kind of room for manoeuvre in terms of not just doing another cookie cutter comic book film. Two other points: Seth Rogen isn't funny. I'm sorry, he just isn't. Yeah, and it's, I was supposed to say, he, he, he wrote this. He, yes. He, he's, he's, he's very responsible for And this. if you've heard the <laughs> clips of it, like when he's talking about, you know, what do we, when he's having the meeting in the in his office about, you know, what do we call the, this guy, and he says, you know, we're going to call him the Green Bee. Yeah. And then, you know, this is kind of very long, protracted conversation about, you know, like Green Bee does have Green Hornet, Green Hornet, okay, fine. Which is exactly like the dialogue in Superbad. It's every bit as dull and every bit as, you know, nonsensical. And yeah, and if you've seen it once, you don't need to see it again. Yes. Um... It's a bit of a shame, it's just, I don't know, he's kind of just, and the way he writes it as well, that, I say, he's, he's just, well, you know what he looks like, but somehow, he's, in films, he's irresistible, every woman on the planet. He, yes, <laughs> and he is trying so hard to be Adam Sandler, which is, let's face it, not the most ambitious thing you can do. You, you won't mind being a pound behind him. 
because <laughs> he's very, very wealthy, but in terms of he's not going to get many invites to the Oscars, is he? <laughs> no, although, no, like I say, Anna Sandler did have a brief period where he made Punch Drunk Love in which he demonstrated he was half decent. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, so you have Seth Rogen starring and co-writing the script, so you get the usual sort of adolescent partying. There are lots of scenes of him drinking vodka straight from a bottle and partying with half-naked women. The other thing that pro that was problematic for me is that the kind of the central double act between him and Jay Chow reminded me, not in a good way, of the double act between Kurt Russell and Dennis Dunn in Big Trouble in Little China. Have you seen no, John Carpenter film? Have you seen? Yeah, I haven't seen that one. No. Basically, a John Kurt Russell plays. Um, I think his name is Jack Burson, who is a truck driver who um, he, he wanders into this place called. His truck gets stolen by mm -hmm. this in this um, part of a, a city called New called Little China, and it turns out that this kind of strange underground city where of Chinese people live and there's ancient mystical beings and he and Dennis Dunn have to kind of stop um, these arranged marriages go ahead for two women one of whom is played by a very young Kim Cattrall <laughs> and it's the, one of the films where you think yes it should be fun and it's martial arts and John Carpenter's a good director but it's completely out of control yeah. and in the end its depiction of you no know, Chinese people is Shall we say slightly insensitive in the sense that there is <laughs> there are lots of shots of people going for just no reason and a guy does blow up after kind of focusing for a bit <laughs> yeah it's it's very odd and it doesn't really work so there is that same kind of awkward double act the other thing which really depresses me it's directed by michel gondry the guy who made eternal sunshine <laughs> of the spotless mind i didn't realize that yeah and, and it, but the thing about it is that you wouldn't because the thing about gondry is i mean he's, he's an auto he comes out of pop videos and so forth and he is famous for doing mechanical in-camera effects so when you see all those dream sequences in eternal sunshine where you know jim carrey and kate Winslet are, are being washed in the sink or he's hiding under the table when she's you know dressed in the miniskirt mm. those are all done with old-fashioned forced perspectives so you have the table a very long way away or the sink is actually a full size but you just shoot it in a certain way. In this, it looks very much like they kind of brought him on board at the last minute when all the CGI had already been done and said, put your name on it, that way we'll kind of, you know, sell it to the quirky audience. In the same way as, you know, when Ang Lee did Hulk, and yes. you basically, you know, you got a kind of romping blockbuster but with a slightly boring bit at the start, which was Ang Lee trying to do the character stuff and it just mm. didn't work. And so it's a film that's been made in spite of Michel Gondry, so, and there's no way you'd tell it was a Gondry film unless you're familiar with his work, which of course I am because I, I love his films, I think. Is it 3D? I think it's it retrofitted 3D, yeah. which means and there was a fantastic quote in the press notes where they said, you know, the decision to do it in 3D came at the end of principal photography, which was great because we could <laughs> see, we could plan all the individual slides. If you're going to do it in 3D, do it at the start of principal yeah. photography. Don't just tuck it on afterwards. So. Yeah, and I was having a half dozen reasons don't go and see it. If you don't like Big Trouble in Little China, don't go and see it with the double act. If you like superhero films, wait for The Dark Knight Rises. If you can't stand Seth Rogen, don't give him more money. And go and rent Eternal Sunshine or The Science of Sleep again, because they're much better films. I was also worrying that Cameron Diaz is, is mentioned, she, she plays the secretary in this, of such a small part, you just think, is this, is this like her trying to... Is this the bet you could get after night and day, or is this just like, <laughs> did she do a favour to someone? It's just yeah. interesting to see that people's careers are going that well, way. Well, I'd rather that she was doing this than there would be a Charlie's Angels 3 coming along, because that was mooted at one point. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> that is the perfect reaction. Apparently, the guy who directed those, Mick G, his latest project is going to be a remake of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, with Will Smith playing Captain Nemo. <laughs> Why? Why do these people have so much money? Yeah. Let's move on before we <laughs> right. get too angry. Um, shall we do uh, Blue Valentine for the second film? Definitely. <laughs> the second new film we've covered in an hour <laughs> and a quarter. Um, so it's a new film from uh, Derek Sian France, um, who's a French director, starring um, Ryan Gosling, who was previously Oscar nominated for Half Nelson, and Michelle Williams, who was Oscar nominated for Brokeback Mountain. So, and it's likely that both of them are going to get nods again. They've both been nominated for Golden Globes. I don't know whether they won or not. Maybe you can shed light on that. The, the story is there are a couple who begin the film with their relationship falling apart, and it's a broken back structure, so you kind of flash back and forth, in the same way as with The Godfather Part Two, you kind of go back and forth between Al Pacino building up the gangster empire in Las Vegas and mm. Robert De Niro growing up in, um, in New York. Um, Just on that, I watched a really weird version of that. Well, well, the version I've watched of Godfather 2, my only experience of Godfather 2 is they edited all the Robert De Niro clips so it was 40 minutes at the start. You've seen the broken back version of Godfather 2? Because what, what, what they did was when Godfather 2 came out, yeah. the television companies brought the rights to it and thought, we can't show this on television, it's all in the wrong order. So they straightened the whole lot out and released Godfather 1 and 2 together as a four-hour film on television. We thought, so it was, no, 
stuff with Marlon Brando, stuff with De Niro, ah, stuff with Pacino, right. and it just doesn't work. Right. I shall revisit it. Yes, go and watch Godfather 2, the proper version, which right. hasn't been straightened out by the TV companies. So you have the kind of broken back structure of, you know, flashing back between the end of the relationship, the beginning of the relationship, and there is a scene, the, thing, the test for the film is, I mean, it's, it's a Sundance-backed production, so you know you're going to get something which is either quirky or honest. There is a scene which has been mentioned almost everywhere, where they are standing in the doorway of a shop and he's got a ukulele playing a song he's just written and she's tap dancing in knee-high boots. Mm. And it's one of the things where either you'll go, that's a really honest, raw portrayal of young love, or that's really great and get off the screen and stop being so <laughs> navel-gazing. And I think I sort of went from one to the other as the song was going on because Ryan Gosling can't sing bless him he could do a lot of things but he can't sing so there is always the danger that it's going to be overly quirky but I think both the lead actors are very good I think it's an interesting treatment of a relationship which doesn't just follow the predictable curve of you know of it, it's 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 been compared by some people to Annie Hall which is dangerous territory hmm. but um yes <laughs> but I think you know if you're interested in seeing what is essentially a character piece with two decent performances, it's worth checking out. But there are tough scenes in it and quite a bit of nudity, apparently. Yeah, so Ryan Gosling's always always watchable in everything he does in the same sort of way that um, we mentioned Matt Damon earlier. Yeah. yeah. But he doesn't go for the big blockbuster stuff. No, and he's not as good as Matt Damon. Incidentally, well, sorry to keep kind of bringing all this up, yeah. um, have you seen the trailer for True Grit, which has got Matt Damon in it? Yes. Is it just me, or does it look like that moustache is constantly about to fall off his face? Yes, it does. Uh, my friend was in last week, and does he, he went through it. He was, he was talking about True Grit, except he was previewing it uh, as starring Jeff Daniels. <laughs> <laughs> so I let him run, I let him talk his way through, and I went, of course, that's True Grit. Not so Jeff Daniels from Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> and he went... And the squid and the whale. And he just put his head and was like, what have I done? <laughs> So is he confusing him for Matt Damon or for Jeff Bridges? For Jeff Bridges. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> just I was like, I'll let him run with this because this is quite funny and a bit of a twisted <laughs> way, so... I'm sorry about that. So if Jeff Bridges had done The Squid and the Whale, it would have been a damn sight more of an interesting <laughs> film. So, yeah, it's kind of half-hearted recommendation if it's your sort of thing. I mean, Sundance has had a pretty good run this year with Kids Are All Right and Winter's Bones, so it's probably going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And which brings us under the last of the releases, which is Conviction, the new film from Tony Goldwyn, who's better known as a voice actor. He's probably most famous for doing the voice of Tarzan in Tarzan, right. the Disney film. Um, this is his second attempt at directing, I think. The story is, it's Sam Rockwell and Hilary Swank, their real-life brother, not real-life, their brother and sister. Um, Rockwell gets jailed for murder and all his appeals are failing, so Swank decides to take, a, to undertake an 18-year-long legal battle to get him out, including deciding to train as a lawyer. Um, here's the thing, you always get films, particularly around this time of year, which exist only to get awards. And ironically, the ones that position themselves the most deliberately are often the ones that get overlooked. I mean, you think of earlier in the year when we had Secretariat, that horse racing film, which was trying desperately hard to be Seabiscuit, which got nominated for Best Picture in 2003. But it just felt like, you know, you're clearly making this for awards and therefore it's not honest or interesting or entertaining in any way. Like The Last Samurai with Tom Cruise going, look yeah. at me, look at yeah, me. Yeah, the whole of his performance in that film look is... At me. The ironic, <laughs> exactly, the ironic thing about that is that he spends the whole of that film essentially going, please give me an Oscar! <laughs> and he didn't even get nominated, which is just fantastic. <laughs> so, there are also similarities with this film to the next three days in the so far as it's about, you know, with just the gender diversity, it's about someone trying to break their lover out of their lover or someone they love mm -hmm. out of prison. You know, it's brother and sister rather than husband and wife. So it's kind of cliched, it's manipulative, and it is ultimately a TV movie. And I think Hilary Swank is in a bit of a rut at the moment. Because her last film, Amelia, which was a, a biopic of Amelia Earhart, didn't even get released over here. And she just, she, ever since, ever <laughs> since P.S. I Love You, that horrible rom-com, she's kind of just, she's kind of been off the boil, and I think she needs to do something a bit more adventurous. Yes, definitely. I there was something written about her which said that all her best performances are the ones in which she gets killed, or, because <laughs> of course that happens at the end of Million Dollar Baby, and to some extent the years boys don't cry, and she won awards for both of them, so... You know, it's, it'll be in and out of cinemas pretty quickly, so don't bother. Film of the week, then? Blue Valentine, although it's not for everyone. Um, if you're not into that, go and see The King's Speech or 127 Hours if you haven't already. Don't go and see 127 Hours if you're either squeamish or, you know, don't like watching films on your own because you won't sit through it. Yeah, if you ha and you have to be the sort of person that has, has patience. If you're one of you, oh, there's no robots, there's no explosions, stuff like that, don't go because you'll spoil it for everyone else in there. <laughs> yes. You go, I'll just check my phone. Yes, and if you go and see Love and Other Drugs, don't sit at the 
the back shouting, where's the nudity? <laughs> <laughs> because you will get kicked out. And next week's cult film will not be Deliverance, unfortunately. We're saving that right for the end. We'll do uh, the original version of The Wicker Man. Nicolas Cage fans need not listen. <laughs> no. Yes, it will be the original and the... And the best. superior. Yes. yes. Anyway, we'll get back to the music and uh, thank you to Daniel and we'll be all back next week. Yeah, see you next week. Iron Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.